0: Welcome back to the Fifth Estate Podcast from the Wheeler Centre. Today, we'll hear from the second of our live events at the 2015 Melbourne Writers Festival. Our topic is the influence of terror group ISIS and what we're not really understanding about how and why it operates. To help us out, we're joined by a couple of star journalists, as well as our ever-reliable host...
1: Sally Warhaft. Uh, We have, of course, another Sally here. Uh, Sally Neighbour is the executive producer of Four Corners, the award-winning author of two books on terrorism and Islamic extremism, The Mother of Muhammad and In the Shadow of Swords, On the Trail of Terrorism from Afghanistan to Australia. Sally previously worked as a foreign correspondent in Hong Kong and China. She was a senior reporter for Four Corners. She's hosted Late Line. She's written extensively for The Australian. And uh, her Helmer's Four Corners EP was described in the Financial Review just this week as a gold Walkley factory. <laughs> Please give Sally a very warm welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And Jamie Tarabay is also a foreign correspondent and author of A Crazy Occupation, Eyewitness to the Intifada. Jamie's worked in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Northern Africa and the United States. She was formerly the Baghdad Bureau Chief for NPR News and a senior staff writer at Al Jazeera America and she's currently the Senior Editor for National Security and Tech at the news website Vocative, and she's based in New York. Welcome, Jamie. Thank
3: you.
1: So the topic uh, t- today uh, discussed the growing influence of ISIS and more generally the challenges of reporting on global conflict. It seemed to me to be two quite separate and really large topics. I'm just going to reframe it ever so slightly to get us into our conversation. um, And I hope and I'm sure by the end of it, we will have covered those two very big strands. So I want to just put it a slightly different way, which is to say that the war against ISIS is simply the most difficult war to ever be covered by foreign correspondents because they're targets and to ask each of you to just, first of all, respond to this proposition.
2: Sally? I think it's true that it is the most difficult war that there has been for correspondents to cover and as a result, it's not getting covered. So there are virtually no journalists in Syria and Iraq, at least from Western mainstream media. The ABC won't send anyone to Syria and won't send anyone to Iraq except to the safest areas. And there's good reason for that because journalists are targets now. You know, in the good old days, journalists used to consider themselves not to be targets in conflict and generally weren't, but but there's been a big change to that. And um, so journalists are targeted for kidnapping and for killing. You know, kidnap for ransom is one of the biggest money spinners for Islamic State and, um, and various other groups. Um, and so you know, the tragic corollary of this is that the conflict is just not getting covered. And so we have a very um, shallow and simplistic public debate and discussion about what's going on there.
4: Jamie? Um, I do agree that it is difficult to cover ISIS, um, but I do also want to say that it's not the first time that we've had to really sort of confront a militant group uh, all that journalists have been at risk. I mean, I was talking to Charlie Glass, who was kidnapped and held by Hezbollah in the 80s in Beirut, and, uh, um, you know, um, in a, and, uh, a, a Serbian photographer who I know who was um, mock executed during the Kosovo War. Um, I think for us, really, things really sort of began to change once Daniel Pearl was executed. And I also think the sort of the um, the introduction of the internet gave uh, the, 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 these militant groups the ability to reach their audiences without us. Uh, up until that point, uh, you know, even bin Laden invited reporters, uh, at least Peter Bergen and um, um, the editor of uh, Ashark al uh to interview him, you know, seemingly without any risk to their person. So the access um, was difficult... But now we are really living in an age where they, you know, the media is actually a deterrent to them putting out their message and maintaining their narrative, and uh, and and you know, and as Sally said, we're also a great big ATM machine for them. So there's all sorts of reasons why um, ISIS is uh, not being as covered as well as it should be.
1: Journalists being targets it's, it It is obviously not the the first time that that they have been targeted, but what what 's different about it sally what 's uh, other than the fact that of course it 's probably the first time that we 've seen people beheaded on film mm. uh, and it, is is it that extreme nastiness of it as well that 's sort of frightened bureau chiefs and and uh, stopped in- institution, media institutions, big ones at least,
2: from sending people in? Um, look, it's all of those things. Um, you know, when I was a correspondent <clears throat> back in the 90s and covering conflicts like um, the war in Cambodia, for example, you know, there was this kind of what seems now like a quaint convention that journalists were more or less, you know, out of bounds. So, you know, we used to wear of flak jackets with press on the front and used to put masking tape on the top of the car saying TV, Mm -hmm. um, based on the assumption that if they knew that you were press and they knew you were TV, that they wouldn't attack you, Uh, in the same way that, you know, we used to wear the Australian flag, or some journalists used to, on the assumption that that would make us safe from attack, which clearly it doesn't these days. Um, So, you know, it was a little bit like the Red Cross, a, a, a TV badge or a press badge. Um, and there were, of course, cases like Jamie's mentioned where journalists were targeted, but it wasn't a frequent or routine thing, whereas now I think, um, you know, Islamic State... They they use beheadings as a propaganda tool and a recruiting tool. It's actually one of their major recruiting tools that they film these videos and, you know, put them online, um, and this is a way that they gain recruits across the world. So, um, you know... Of course, it's not just journalists who've been kidnapped and killed in that way. Lots of other people have. But um, um, it has become a part of their modus operandi. And, you know, propaganda is so important. It's so central to their aims and the way they operate that, you know, stopping the alternative narrative, which is the one told by Western journalists, um, is absolutely critical. So that, you know, their narrative is the one that, you know, predominates... What else is it um, with
1: ISIS that makes this so challenging? What's at the heart of it that makes it so so difficult? The idea that you would not, uh, in two thousand and fifteen, be able to send journalists in to cover the conflict of our times.
4: I think you know, um, if if you're going into a hostile environment, you need to be able to know how you're going to navigate your way through it, Um, and if. Ultimately, really, the fact that journalists are not considered to be non-combatants, they look at you like you are part of the war, you are a target. So you go in there knowing that there is – and you're not armed. So journalists should never, by and large, uh, you know, have any weapons on them. And if you go in with a security team, they have weapons on them. So you are defenceless. And, you know, I mean (laughs) – I, it, it's almost like the memory is so short, but, you know, I, I have very vivid memories of being in Iraq in 03 and 04 and '05 and '06 and 07 uh, when people were kidnapped and put in orange jumpsuits and had their throats sliced in front of cameras, um, you know, by pretty much the same people who are still doing that today. There is definitely something more... Grat- so it's instant gratification, the way that they do it, the the way that they reach out publicly on their forums to ask for ideas on how to execute people, the way they circulate talking points to people to be able to explain why they set a Jordanian pilot on fire. There is definitely a savviness uh, with the way they communicate uh, that, um, that we as journalists would completely undo. And there's not even a question. If we were to ever meet anyone like that, they would just be like, you're gone, you're dead.
2: And executing individuals, journalists or aid workers or whoever they are, is a way of amplifying their power in an extraordinarily powerful way. I mean, Islamic State um, doesn't seek to carry out mass casualty attacks like 9-11 or any of those, the other attacks that followed September 11. Um, But, you know, killing one individual... On camera, by cutting their throat, creates as much terror and fear as you know killing 2,000 people in, uh, by bringing two skyscrapers down. So you know for them it's an incredibly powerful tactic. Um, you know, it, and it really gives th- the impression
4: that their power is much greater than it really is. Um, and having it, and having the execution delivered by a man in a British accent. Yeah. Is very powerful because if you don't understand what they're saying, it it helps to almost just imagine that they're not actually people in a way. They're not people, but if this you know, jihadi John is speaking, you know, they, they're calling the 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 sort of the most brutal of these uh, um, the, the men who were holding the journalists were called the Beatles because they had British accents. You know uh, that 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 terrifies people because it could be someone that they know. It's not that easy to dismiss it. It's like, that belongs in that region. It's not something that I need to be worried about.
2: And similarly, using guys like, you know, the the young Australian boy with the orange hair, who was known as the ginger jihadi, Mm -hmm. um, in those propaganda videos where they're appearing in, you know, a big group of 50 guys with AK-47s and the full kit. And he, in his Aussie accent, is, you know, delivering this scary message to the West. I mean... A young guy like that with no training and no knowledge would be pretty useless to a serious insurgent group except for the propaganda value and, you know, that's the amazing value of people like that for them.
1: We'll move on shortly to the repercussions of the lack of stories that are able to be got uh, over there. But as an executive producer of a flagship program in Australia, you as a senior editor. How do you think about ways of overcoming this? You're not prepared, obviously, to send uh, one of your correspondents in there. I mean, do you think about...
2: They must want to go, some of them, I'd imagine. Most people don't really want to go. Um, Some people would like to go. You know, the correspondent in... um the Middle East at the moment, uh, Matt Brown, who's a fabulous correspondent, you know, would, would like to get closer to the action. But, um, you know, it's just too big a risk, really. And media organisations have become much more risk averse for, for good reasons and for bad reasons. You know, it is frustrating for journalists sometimes when you just want to go and cover a story and tell the story. Um, and management, you know, has become really quite risk averse. But in the case of Iraq and Syria, there's really good reasons for that. Um, so it's really frustrating. Um, you know, we've been looking... We, on Four Corners, we run about a dozen bought-in programs each year that come from the BBC or, you know, PBS or wherever, and we're on the lookout for a really great story on Islamic State from the inside. Mm. Um, but and they're there's not none. It either. No, no-one's going in. I mean, Vice News, the American Vice News, went in and made this fantastic um, doco series, but since then I haven't seen yeah. anything really good from inside. Um so it 's a real bind. I think the way around it is to kind of start you know crowdsourcing material from inside, and I keep thinking, we must do that, but we just haven 't got around to it yet, but there must be you know people who are filming stuff on their mobile phones, yeah. um, you know posting it, gathering it, um, and bits and pieces of that stuff do get out, but of course that 's incredibly dangerous for the people who do it so You know, you've you've got a duty of care toward them too. You know, you can't have people, you can't not send your own people in and rely on people on the ground. You know, because they would face you know just as much danger. And for that reason,
1: uh, freelancers that are going in, major news institutions won't buy their their work most of them. Jamie.
4: Yeah. No. I mean, I think that uh, Reuters, for example, and other sort of major organisations have basically said. We're not going to encourage you, uh, so we're not going to pay for it. Um, but one of the things that we've been trying to do, um, advocative is to uh, at least try to counter. I think the more people understand about what life is really like, un- un- you know, in the Islamic State, the more um, they'll, you know, sort of the veil. Um, you know, is pulled away. And, we ha- you know, we have this ability to be able to sort of delve into the deep web to be able to pull up stuff that is, like, just ground sourced. Um, you know, there's a Syrian activist group called Raqqa is being slaughtered silently that does a lot of um, videos. Um, the, the images that ISIS does not want you to see of, you know, people in Raqqa, purportedly pur- 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 kart- truth- you know, the capital of, you know, the Islamic State, uh, you know, lining up with buckets for water and food and just the idea the, that they are trying to perpetuate this idea of, of a perfect state that has health care and, uh, you know, um, charity for the poor and, you know, clean roads and electricity and things like that and uh, anything that we can sort of, you know, find ourselves to put, kind of put out there to sort of counter that message, at least to be able to illuminate what it really is like for people um Who go out there and you know we you know every time we get something like you know they release one of their special uh forces training videos we'll ask a navy seal to look at it and after they've laughed their asses off at it they'll actually tell us this this is like this is preposterous so it does sort of because you know otherwise you see these guys in black and they're like running through water and you think oh my goodness these people are like really trained well and they're really equipped and That guy's like, you know, by the time he's finished drying himself off, he's like dead. So, you know, I think taking away the mystique that they are working so hard to cultivate is something that we've been really trying to do all this time as well.
1: It seems to me that if you can't get people in there, then the alternative is to be really looking at people that have been and got out. And of course, that is incredibly complicated now in Australia, particularly because of the Q&A. Um, well, drama. Uh, Sally, tell us how you responded to well the government's response to to the infamous uh, question and, and by uh, Zaki Maller and whether it 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 uh, created. A difficult situation for people in your position who might actually seriously like, l- want to get these guys talking as
2: an option? I thought the whole thing was a ridiculous beat up. Um, I mean, after the event. You know, people like myself who are executive producers of programs make decisions all the time about, about, you know, who to invite on and who to interview and um, who to talk to in your programs, and it doesn't mean you're necessarily giving them a platform. I mean, you have to be careful about that because sometimes you are, but, you know, we need to expose and explore and dissect issues and events and stories, and you need to hear from a whole range of people to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I... I think in hindsight, you could say, well, you know, maybe there was potentially, you know, a security risk because Zaki could have turned out to be a man Haron monist, the guy who everyone had previously thought was, you know, a harmless fruitcake who then, you know, did the horrendous siege at the um, Lint Cafe. But I think if I'd been in the position of Peter McAvoy, the EP of uh, Q&A, I would quite likely have made the same decision. To, to have Zaki Mellor come in and ask a question. He's been around for years. He's kind of a serial um, media nuisance, you know. He's always in the media. He's an attention seeker. He has always, you know, as far as we know, been relatively harmless, apart from the kind of strange and, you know, attention-seeking um, events that led to his arrest initially. But, I mean, I think that, to me, that whole incident was just a reflection of the fact that, you know, the... the the people who would like to destroy the ABC um, will use any little occasion or incident that they can to do it. Does it then make it
1: more difficult for you, though, to make decisions potentially about who you bring into, say, a Four Corners documentary, or are you able to just put the,
2: the Q&A thing to one side? and Look, I think we both, we have to be prudent and acknowledge, you know, the political environment in which we're operating, which is one where the ABC is under severe scrutiny, and in particular because of the News Corporation position on the ABC, which is that they would like to destroy the publicly funded broadcaster because we are direct competition to them, Um, and therefore any kind of political concerns about what the ABC is doing, which are also, you know, often just... um, Confected get amplified in a quite ridiculous way. So we we have to be prudent, we have to acknowledge that's the world we live in. Also, the ABC is taxpayer funded. We have to be absolutely rigorous and forensic and um, conscientious and scrupulous in everything we do that spends taxpayers' money. Um, So, you know, those are parts of the reality. We also have to, you know, take risks and try and be as fearless as we can about just doing the job that has to be done and the journalism that has to be done. Because if the ABC is not doing it, no-one else in this country is going to be doing it. Thank you. Jamie,
1: what have you learned uh, about the war uh, with ISIS from people that have come back?
4: Well, I haven't really been paying attention to anybody who's actually been lucky enough to come back, um, but I, I, you know, I firmly believe that there's no way that anything is going to happen with ISIS as long as uh, Bashar Assad is allowed to remain where he is, and I think that as long as everyone ignores that Assad um, actually kills seven times as many Syrians as ISIS does, nothing's going to change. And, you know, when you listen to... Um, I get an email every day from the DOD telling me that they have launched X amount of airstrikes in Iraq on ISIS targets and X amount of airstrikes uh, on Syrian targets. And the the, the head of the Joint uh, ch- uh, Chairman Chiefs of... Stu- Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, uh, said at one point uh, recently that American uh, jets will fly over ISIS targets and return without having dropped anything. Uh, So, you know, $2.5 billion later, 8,000 airstrikes, one year into this military action, and ISIS still controls half of Syria, uh, a large part of Iraq. And... Obama pretty much admitted that he does not have a cohesive strategy to tackle ISIS. Um, you know, the Turks have decided to use the opportunity of becoming involved by bombing the Kurds as equally as they've been bombing ISIS. No-one talks about what they're going to do about Assad. And as long as they don't have that conversation, we can talk about ISIS till the cows come home. It means nothing.
1: I want to come back, Sally, to uh, your first response uh, about the repercussions of not having journalists in there uh, and the the ability that then gives governments to really simplify this war so that you end up hearing cliches and um, very thin one-liners, opportunities to create or attempt to create cultures of fear that may or may not be reasonable. Um, and, uh, you know, lines, you know, the death cult and so on. Uh, Can you
2: speak to that? Yeah. Yeah, look, I think that's, you know, one of the most regrettable results of the fact that we can't get in and for the most part we can't cover that war is that as a result we have this really simplistic, basically ignorant public discussion about ISIS and, you know, what it is and the extent of the threat it poses toward us. So, you know, in all the discussion about it, we hear over and over from the Prime Minister it's an evil death cult. Um, I mean, I think, you know, that might be reasonable to describe some of the things it does as being akin to what an evil death cult, if there was such a thing, might do. But, you know, it's not the only thing about ISIS. ISIS is actually a functioning state in parts of Iraq and Syria, albeit an inept one, as Jamie says, it it levies taxes, it provides services, it provides a kind of bizarre level of security for its people. Um, It is, you know, as David Kilcullen writes in his excellent um, quarterly essay, which I recommend if you're interested in the subject... um, Um, ISIS differs from Al-Qaeda in that it is essentially a state-building exercise. Um, Al-Qaeda was a terrorist group. ISIS is essentially a state-building enterprise and they have built a state. Um, And so, unfortunately, because we can't get into that state, you know, we, we can't reveal that it's inept and desperate and miserable and the people are, you know, suffering and have to queue up for buckets of water. So, what we're left with is this kind of reduced debate which um, tells us nothing about Islamic State inflates um, the danger of it and inflates the danger of it to us. So we're also told by the Prime Minister they're coming to get us. Um, And, you know, that sort of discussion continues to flourish because we can't get in there and just bring the much more mundane truth about ISIS to the public. So... You know, that's really quite frustrating. And, and you know, politicians um, capitalise on that. You know, it suits them. It suits them for us to be really terrified. Um, you know, ISIS has killed very, very few foreigners, um, and that's not what it seeks to do. Um, they're not coming to get us. There will be, you know mad people and, you know, vicious, nasty criminals who latch on to their message and their ideology and then carry out, you know, atrocities in their name, as happened with the Limp Cafe siege. But um, that guy had not had any contact with ISIS. He had just kind of latched onto them and then made that the emblem for, you know, the awful thing he did. So, you know, it's, it's a real frustration and it's, it's central to this really kind of dumbed-down Political and public discussion we're
4: having at the moment. Is it like that in the states where you're based, Jamie? Um, to, to you know, to an extent, there's definitely. Um there's definitely a sense, and I think because there have been so many, there are not not very many foreigners, but you know the foreigners who have been killed by ISIS have been done so so publicly, and because the US is carrying out these strikes and is costing so much money, there is definitely a focus on it. Uh, and you know, I mean, but I do think that uh, so much of the explanations are facile, you know. And now, particularly since I'm having so much fun watching the presidential campaign. Uh, you know, and everyone's blaming everyone for creating ISIS, which is my favorite question of all time, so please don't ask me that question. Um, but, you know, it, it's, when, when the Iraq War was happening, um, there was a lot of rhetoric, but it was all very much designed to serve things up in black and white. So people could understand us versus them is very monolithic, and it was just easy to digest. And it was nothing like that. It was a lot of gray, uh, and we were still there to be able to explain in this area, these people are fighting these people and these people you know, and 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 you know, to be able to sort of it's too complex for most people to be interested enough to understand. And so uh, the people who have been able to get their message across are the ones who've been able to simplify it in a way that most people will get and are willing to sort of digest. Uh, and that you know, that is a problem. And You know, it also comes into this whole idea of whether it's anti-Islam, you know, and and the idea that this is not the first time a radical ideology of, you know, of a group of people that has wanted to exterminate another group of people has not ever happened before. Like, we've never seen that before. You know, so it's just a challenge to try to get people to understand the root causes, the idea that ISIS just kind of arrived out of nowhere that it was just sort of implanted in Iraq and Syria. Uh, it just gets too complicated for people to get uh, how difficult it will be to defeat and contain. And uh, and the idea that the surge worked, which was another one of my favorites, uh, and that if we just flood the country again with more troops, uh, they you know, then this will all be over again. So there's always there's a lot of messaging going on, and uh, with political campaigns, it just becomes more heated, but also more um, simple. Do Do you
1: have a sense of, of an approach
4: that would be better? I do, <laughs> but I'm not in charge. Uh, no, I just you know I I think the reality is that look everyone, you know I mean I watched uh, Anne Marie Slaughter uh, talked about this uh, at the Aspen Ideas Festival you know, the idea of, you know, it's better to contain ISIS than it is to, you know, ratchet up and send people and put boots on the ground and all that stuff. And as she said, and very succinctly, you know, we have seen this movie before, uh, you know, and there, you know, there were a hundred and so thousand US troops in Iraq at one point. They managed to subdue or, you know, work out a, a truce with uh, the Sunni tribes uh, on the premise that the Iraqi government was going to sort it out for them and Um, Start to, you know, build some kind of relationship, you know, so the Americans were operating in a vacuum. The Americans would operate in a vacuum again, and more so, we'd be asked to do it too. So, uh, you know, the idea that we would all be asked to do something yet again uh, for something that would have the exact same result uh, is just... What is that thing that they say about the act of doing something and expecting different results? Like, what are that, what's that saying? Failing to learn from history. <laughs> yeah, but it's also, like, stupidity, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but the, I think that given... Um, if, you look at the, if you look at the region and you see the role of Syria, the role of Turkey, the role of Iran. And if really, if people wanted to contain and eliminate ISIS, they could. And, and it would require a much greater effort than they're carrying out right now.
2: And the other thing is that there's no doubt that ISIS is a vicious, savage regime, which is oppressing its people. But there's a lot of those in the world. You know, the North Korean regime is vicious and has been oppressing and starving its people for a very long time. We're not invading North Korea. You know, the the, the Chinese government has been oppressing and, you know, destroying the culture of Tibet and Xinjiang and Western China for a very long time. We're not invading China. So, you know, why are we so fixated on Islamic State? Um, You know, yeah, it's a really nasty regime, but but, um, it doesn't necessarily threaten us directly. It does threaten world peace and order. There's no doubt about that. But, I mean, why would we invade those countries when we're not invading, you know, various other places where equally savage regimes are in place?
1: Well, it's, uh, part of this is the simplification, isn't it? And you wouldn't have to read very widely to, you know, know that apparently the death cult is coming to get us. And uh, so much so that, in fact, on the streets of Melbourne, uh, we were uh, informed yesterday morning for a brief time that we actually needed our border security force uh, apparently on every corner with tram conductors in order to make sure people who presumably don't look like me randomly had their visas in check. An astonishing I mean, it was just—I just didn't even believe what I was seeing as I read it, and uh, as it unfolded, it was course cancelled even before the press release um, uh, was—the uh, press conference was was given. Uh, this has—it's been pointed out by some correspondents that it seems to be part of a government uh, idea of putting out a sort of security something every week, or you know, let's go with this. Uh, and uh, amazing and terrific response from the people of Melbourne to make sure that that was stopped in its tracks. Sally, um, what did you make of that and how do you connect it to all of this?
2: Look, I think it is another example of, um, you know, what happens when you have this kind of ill-informed... And somewhat hysterical political and public discussion about the level of threat to all of us. You know, somehow then the next day you've got these border force cops in their black outfits, you know, ready to start patrolling the streets of Melbourne. I don't think we know yet who ordered that, so it's not clear whether it was just a cock up by some kind of mid ranking um, police or security officer or if there was some political directive that led to it but so it'll be interesting to see you know when that plays out and that you know that's going to be a story for a while but um you know we we do know that the government has sought to make national security a major issue and that the government feels that it's on very strong ground um when it's you know Arguing about national security and you know purporting to protect us, and the um, opposition is in lockstep with the government on that. So you know, the, both major political parties have determined that it's in their interests politically to be seen to be tough and strong on you know protecting us all. Um, I doubt that we're really at risk outside Flinders Street Station. It's not our foreign correspondents,
1: of course, that this is up to. But how do you think our domestic journalists are going at really digging into these stories as they go? Because, for me, as that unfolded yesterday, I thought, mm, I wonder if this will still be around by Monday." Obviously, oh yeah, I think it will. <laughs> I think it will too. But uh, the news cycle. It only has so much time for each story and then if if, if there isn't an answer, mm. uh, it, can, it can drift away. Do you think that at home uh, journalists are doing enough, enough digging, Look, enough follow-up?
2: I think they are, really. I mean, you know, I think the Australian news media is pretty good by and large. I mean, we've got lots of crappy news media. Um, but I think, you know, by world standards, I think we've got a pretty good news media and I think you know, they're now right onto this issue of national security being exploited for political gain. You know, it's taken a long time. It's taken since September 11, really. Um, And we all kind of, you know, for quite a lot of years after September 11, I think, you know, most people felt that a level of security was important, that there was a danger to all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, we had the Bali bombings. Um, You know, there have been terrorist plots uncovered in Australia. So there is no doubt that there is a risk from terrorism to Australia, including here. But I think, you know, people have become much more sceptical about, you know, the measures that are needed to contain that. And I think journalists have taken a while, but I think they're doing a reasonable job now of
4: chasing that up. What's yours? I'm just really happy she said cock up. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to take that one home today. (laughs) I mean, I think that uh, I do feel like... There was a, it wasn't just in Australia. The American media, I mean, everyone knows the utter, utter failure of by uh, 90-something percent of uh, the American media to just, you know, walk lockstep with the Bush administration following 9-11, not second-guessing any of the motivation, any of the, you know, any of the sort of the dictates that came out of, uh, you know, the war on terror, Um, It was very frustrating for for those of us who were in the Middle East at the time to see the the real lack of scrutiny and scepticism, particularly when the sort of the drums for the Iraq war began. That was very disturbing to see because it really leapt from Afghanistan to Iraq and just how anyone made that connection was, you know, I actually feel like we still haven't seen any accountability. Uh, You know, a lot of these people still managed to make, Lots of money from all their books, and you know it's funny um, when the whole ISIS thing kicked in last year. There was a story out saying that if you were not a neocon, you couldn't get on TV because no one wanted to hear from anyone who wasn't a neocon. It was amazing uh, that there's still this, you know, gravitating towards this point of view because it's familiar and it's comforting. Uh, it's it's wildly wrong, but you know um, this is you know. It's, it's just that's the frame of mind. And there's still a lot of partisanship in uh, in American media. And you can tell, you know, if you pick up a newspaper and you, you I mean, I do because I've spent so much time, you know, sort of consuming American media that I know what I'm going to get when I even look at the name on the story, let alone the newspaper. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, there, it's kind of this wildly divergent from this... Um, almost like conspiracy theorists, the government is out to get you, journalism too, everybody wants to kill us and we have to always be alert and there's, it's difficult to sort of find the middle ground that is actually, you know what, it's not as bad as that, but actually here are the things that you need to pay attention to. And, uh, and you know, these are all the rights that are being taken away from you the more that you allow the government to enact X, Y and Z acts. So there's definitely... Um, I don't, I don't know if I can say that they're more um, aware and sceptical than they were 10 years ago. I'd like to think so. Um, but, you know, we, the Bush administration behaved one way. The Obama administration is notorious for uh, cracking down on leaks and, uh, and you know, just make, making sure that its messaging uh, is what is out there and, you know, just um, combating any kind of, like, adverse point of view. So it's, it's, it's really sort of being able to watch that firsthand is, is, is it's just, it's interesting right now.
5: Mm.
4: It's a challenge. I think that everybody has, and uh, the problem is that it's not really a public service if you're, if you know, the job of the journalist is to be able to inform, not to tell people how they should be thinking and, you know, not to be able to say this is what you need to know um, because I'm telling you this is what you should be afraid of. And it's just the public is being let down by that. Uh, And, of course, there's
1: a never-ending problem with resources. And, uh, Sally, you mentioned earlier the idea about getting somebody to trawl through all the things that are, you know, coming out one way or another, but that would require, at the ABC at least, presumably a dedicated staff member to be doing
2: that pretty much all the time. Is that about right? Um, well, for a while, mm. yeah. Um, and, yeah, resourcing is an issue. I mean, all media organisations, particularly the traditional media organisations, are, you know, under real pressure financially and staff-wise. As you know, the ABC lost three or 400 staff last year. Um, there, will, there may be more staff cuts to come, I'm not really sure, but, um, um, you know, there'll no doubt be more budget cuts to come. Um, The ABC's become spread very thin. You know, we've now got the 24-hour news service and we've got a massive uh, online presence, which a lot of resources have been kind of, you know, sort of shifted over to. So, look, you know, resourcing isn't being put into investigative journalism. It's being put into the kind of, you know, ubiquitous 24-hour rolling news and uh, Mm -hmm. online news. And, you know, that, that's a good thing in lots of ways but, um, you know, we have to kind of fight to make sure that resources at least aren't stripped away from investigative journalism. And so far we're okay but, you know, it's an ongoing fight. Can you just tell us uh, in global conflict more
1: broadly about the kind of uh, precautions and what goes on in making a decision either as a journalist yourself or being responsible for a journalist as a producer or an editor in in going into a dangerous situation and at what point do you just say i can't i can't be making this risk cuz it's such a fine line isn't it between a Pulitzer prize and losing your head
4: it is I a very think fine line <laughs>
2: Oh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> I think correspondents used to be a lot more autonomous than they are now and used to be much freer to make their own decisions about risk. I remember doing a story in Kashmir for foreign correspondent. must have been twenty years ago when I was based in Hong Kong, and it was the beginning of the insurgency there, and, um, you know, uh, the the growing insurgency and um, opposition internally to Indian rule of Kashmir and Pakistan and India were at loggerheads and it was seen at seen as you know a potential nuclear flashpoint and um, so we went in there to do this story and there was a curfew in place there were soldiers on the streets um, and um, you know it was pretty tense um, we were getting stopped at roadblocks and you know guns pointed at us, and we wanted to go and interview one of the insurgent leaders, the the leader of the main insurgent group, and so we had to go through this elaborate process, which I'm sure Jamie's familiar with, whereby, you know, you meet at a safe house, and then you switch cars, and you're taken to another safe house, and you have to wait, and then you're taken off, you know, somewhere into the woods, and, you know, we were kind of driving around for hours, had no idea where we were, we were completely in the hands of these people, and so we end up at the location, um where um, the insurgent leaders there surrounded by these guys with the masks and the AK-47s. And, you know, it was a classic journalist's girl's own adventure. That's why you become a journalist, to do stuff like that. It was fantastic. It was a great story. But, you know, I don't think we'd be able to do that stuff these days. Um, It was... Was it foolhardy? I don't know. You know, we had a local fixer. You rely very heavily on your local fixer. You know, the local fixer that you employ is life or death for you um, because local knowledge is the only thing that gets you the story and gets you out of there safely. Um, but journalists these days have, um, well, the the risks are much greater. You know, journalists are targeted more frequently. Media companies are much more risk-averse, you know, for some good reasons. So um, journalists have much less freedom now, I would say, to make those risk assessments themselves on Mm -hmm. the ground, there's a lot more involvement by management and, you know, professional risk assessors and the insurance company gets consulted and you've got to do safety reports before you go. So there's just a lot less freedom. Um,
4: Yeah, I mean, you don't go blind. You don't go in there without knowing where you're going and who you're going with. And I think absolutely you have to have people on the ground. Uh, You make a lot of friends uh, you know, having the language is extremely helpful because you have to, um, I mean, I found it just, I don't know how anybody could do it without understanding because you have to learn how to read a crowd because everything can turn on the dime and uh, and you have to be able to know how to get out of a situation. like that was my mantra when I was uh, I went to hostile environment training, when I was 25. And the first thing they told us was, secure your exit. And that has just stayed in my head. Even now, when I'm at a concert or, you know, in a restaurant, it's mm-hmm. like, I still apply that. It's, it's over there. <laughs> I know where it is. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's just, you know, you, you, you really... Um, the, the sort of the macro, um, the, the overarching is definitely the organisation, your editors, your, your, the people who have to make the phone call to your family if anything happens. Um, but ultimately, you really do have to sort of use your own street smarts to be able to say, I feel confident going down this road. Um, I'm not going to ask you to be responsible for my safety because I feel okay with this. Um and even that is you are taking a great big breath and diving in. So um, it's never easy. I think those car journeys are the most stressful ones because you're actually so much more exposed in the car than you are at any really other point because you can get stopped in traffic, you can drive by a bombing, you, you know, people will see you, uh, you know, and, uh, and that's, that, you know, that's a lot of anxiety.
2: And you have to respect and defer to other people's judgments and fears too. You know, if your yeah. cameraman doesn't feel safe, you can't do it. If, you, if your driver's saying, we have to get out yep. now, then you have to get out now, even if, you know, there's still a guy there who you desperately want to interview. So you have to kind of respect and allow for other people's expert judgments and instincts mm-hmm. as well.
4: Um, do you think that Al Jazeera... Uh, badly let down their journalists in Egypt and if so how do you feel about it and why do you think it happened? God, I mean I don't know why it happened but do I think they did? Yes, I do and I don't think that anyone would disagree with me Um, I think choosing to sue the government of Egypt when three of your journalists are being held in custody um, isn't exactly going
5: to calm things down so yeah I do Thank you Um, Going back to ISIS, I think it's important to identify uh, some of the forces that are keeping it going. Uh, There is a very important role for the Gulf states Mm -hmm. in the way that ISIS has developed and the way that it's going on. The reality is that ISIS was certainly at the beginning um, funded, supported by Saudi Arabia, Qatar and the United States. As time has gone on, the, the U.S. has changed its uh, policy, but Saudi Arabia and Qatar have continued to support this, or, this group, this organization. And I want to make, it, uh, make the point that uh, um, focusing we, we on We need a question. I'll try, yes. Um, I, I just want to say that focusing on the Assad regime as being somehow that if you remove it, Um, uh, you know, ISIS will be defeated, I really have to tell you, could not be more wrong. The only uh, legitimate uh, governments in those two countries, in Iraq and in Syria, are the governments that exist now. Certainly, not not the opposition groups. Now, Mm. my question to you is, given that these are facts and realities, I mean the support for ISIS. How would you, if you're really interested in getting rid of ISIS, how would you go about um, uh, removing this, what in my view is a pernicious kind of support for this awful organization?
4: Well, I mean, first of all, um, I'm going to take issue with the U.S. support of ISIS mm. because I'm not really sure where that came from. No, and I'm not
2: aware of any evidence. Um, for that I also
4: either. don't. Um, I at, at no point did I suggest that the opposition groups in Syria would be a better alternative to Assad, and I don't believe that Assad is actually a legitimate government or authority in Syria because if you are a dictator, you're there by like imposing your will on the people. So I'm. I'm sorry I have to disagree with you about that as well. I do believe that the Gulf allies have to do more. I actually said that I don't think that anyone's doing near enough what they could. I do believe that it is a concerted effort that requires everyone. Involved to contain and eliminate ISIS. And I don't just say that it should just be Syria. I said Turkey needs to do its part, Iran needs to do its part, and certainly the Gulf, or, uh, Gulf allies need to do their part as well. So, um, but I also believe that because it's going to take all these different groups with all their different interests involved to do this, it's going to take a very long time before we even get there. So, Sally? No, I think you've got it. Thanks. <laughs> um,
1: the lady in the red there. Thanks.
3: Thank you for this informative session. What I was missing, I went to your last session, Jamie. Oh God. <laughs> Don't say that. It was very passionate. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, you mentioned there, and you mentioned again, we're not informed about Assad. Uh, I've just returned from, actually, Jordan and uh, also Turkey and saw the recruiting that was going on in Jordan for ISIS. And the what, what puzzled me is how little we are informed of the economic circumstances that are happening in, in Jordan that I saw, mm-hmm. which is that jobs have gone, things are getting bad in many ways I think in what I can see in the Middle East so Assad I I was trying to I was puzzled where does all this fit because the recruiting of women young women going to ISIS is one thing that's not mentioned here and I didn't feel it was that difficult to report that yeah, for instance, Okay. and the promises. So my question is, what, why are we not getting the, for instance, one Assad um, power that's operating and not being highlighted, and secondly, the recruiting that's going on all around, which is also on misconceptions, Especially of the young women
4: there. Okay. Um, so um, I, I, you can obviously regarding um, when it when it comes to reporting on Assad, and I'm sure Sally will agree with me that anyone, any like main mainly Western journalists do go into Damascus, but you have to get a government visa, which means that you are basically under uh, the monitoring of the Syrian government. They know everything about where you're going, who you're meeting with, um, and so you're unlikely to interview anyone in Damascus who's going to say anything against Assad. Um, and, and, and if you want to talk more about that. Regarding the women, there was actually a really brilliant article in the New York Times uh, last week about the, they call them the Bethnal Green girls, so the, the British uh, girls who were 15, 16 years old and went. And, you know, here's the thing. It's like there's people aren't just being recruited Uh, to be fighters, they're being recruited to be citizens of a state. These girls are being told, come here, be good Muslims, help us grow our state, be doctors, be teachers, be nurses, we need you. There was an Australian doctor on, on a video saying, please, I urge all of my colleagues to come and be part of this. And one of the biggest recruiting tools is that they're there taking care of the Syrians who Assad is killing and maiming, and, and if they think that they, as it is their Muslim duty to do, to go and help their fellow Muslims, of course they're gonna do it, you know? So, so there's all sorts of aspects of who's coming. Whole families are going because they believe, you know, and it's part of being a Muslim. If like you wanna live in a country where Islam is, you know, the, the, the rule of law, and this is a society, and you can practice your religion freely, um, I think that. Well, they'll marry them. That's the thing. And it's like you get to choose. And they do. They get to choose.
2: No, I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> Sally. I was, I, gonna... I was just going to say that I think that um, the coverage of that conflict, particularly within the Australian media, has been skewed toward the scary, easy bits to cover. So we actually have had a lot of coverage of recruitment, particularly recruitment of the relatively small number of. Australian young guys who've gone over there. There's been a lot of coverage of that. There's been a fair bit of coverage of the women who've been uh, recruited in Australia, who've gone over there, become, you know, brides of ISIS. Um, we've had l- much less coverage, you know, exploring the economic background to it, you know, the you know economic, cultural and sort of political uh, reasons for the conflict, you know, what's going on in the ground in Syria, what the Assad government's up to. It's partly because people won't go in, you know, so we've had very few journalists, Paul McGough being, you know, the outstanding exception who's not afraid to go anywhere, but, you know, there are very few others who are actually going in on the ground and exploring those broader issues. So it's partly because of the danger, problems of access, and partly because... Um, I think the Australian media is much better at domestic coverage than international coverage because mm. we're quite insular. And also, you know, we're lazy and it's much easier to cover those kind of scary recruitment stories than the much more complex stories of why is it happening.
1: Anyone on this side, on the right? <laughs> you want Melbourne Writers Festival balance Yes, It's the left from their perspective.
4: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
0: So why is it happening?
4: Why is what happening?
0: So you, the, you're saying we're, we're avoiding the questions of, of why it's happening and focusing on the easy ones. So what's the answer to that? Why is it happening?
4: I can't answer
2: that. I was actually just going to the point that the lady up there was making about, you know, why Australians aren't telling us what's going on with Assad and what's happening on the ground. Um, why is it happening? I can't be answered in, you know, a forum like this. Um You know, there are many, many factors and reasons to that. You know, one reason historically is that, you know, the invasion of Iraq created a whole new monster. So, you know, that was a key factor in the awful mess we've got now. But, you know, it also goes back to, you know, European colonisation of the Middle East, the arbitrary uh, borders that were drawn up, the failure of the Arab Spring. You know, there are so many... Factors that, you know, you'd have to talk about a 100 of them to have an even adequate discussion. Last question. The lady in the blue top
1: at the very end there who's had her hand up the whole time. Uh, You'll have to
4: make it quick, please. It will be a really quick question. Um, I just wonder, as we're getting such a skewed view of what's happening... Do either of, or any of you, ever see a situation where the media might actually decide to take a blanket decision to not post any of this footage of beheadings, to basically not act as the oxygen to ISIS's fire? I think you see that already. I know know certainly uh, uh, in the States, when uh, the executions started happening, that there was almost a blanket decision online, especially on Twitter, to not post beheading photos. Um, and, um, you know, ISIS puts out all kinds of execution videos pretty regularly, and we don't, uh, we don't publish them, and we don't link to them, uh, you know, and, uh, and we can describe them a little bit, and, and most people will do that as well. That We might take a screen grab, but, um, but it's, it's just not something we want to give air to. You know, really, because um, we don't really want to trade on that kind of and um, you know, that kind of brutality. I, I've seen that a lot in the states, and I don't think there's been like an actual official, you know, conscious decision about it. But I think that, particularly when Jim Foley was killed and Sotloff was killed, everyone online on Twitter was just like, "Please do not post those pictures," and and pretty much everyone. Did not do that, so um, that was really gratifying to see. And it was, I think, it was also just a collective thing that people were doing because it was just so horrific.
2: And Australian media has taken basically the same position. Um, I mean, mainstream media doesn't show those pictures, and nor should we. Um, I think when the first guys in the orange jumpsuits were killed, we were showing, you know, bits of the video in the lead up, um, but. Never, of course, the moment of death. But um, I think when they started happening again and again, we became much more averse to even running any of the imagery. So, yeah, I think the media has been reasonably responsible about that. However,
4: all of that is, all of that is completely accessible online. And I yeah, promise right. you that, um, you know, many Arab networks are showing it. Um, you know, and I don't know if the Europeans are but it's not like you can't find it if you, you know, if you want to look for it so it's definitely available Twitter is doing actually a really interesting job of being able to shut down those accounts as quickly as they can and then they have actually tried they've, they've, this is how savvy they are is because once they know that they're going to get shut down um, they will then go and create a new account and other people will say, this person that you were following, he's now moved to this Twitter handle. And it's really interesting to watch, but it's, it's something that Twitter has been doing um, for, you know, for a while now to, to try to sort of stop Gapper. That's been very, very interesting to watch.
0: And we leave the discussion on that point. Speaking of interesting things to watch, though, just a reminder that if this podcast isn't quite getting you close enough to the discussion, you can also find videos of our Fifth Estate series at wheelercentre.com. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Fifth Estate. Next up, Sally is joined by Tim Flannery, Catherine Tay-White and John Grimes to talk climate change. They'll provide an update of the depth of trouble we're already in and discuss some of the technologies and models that might help us find a way through. See you then.